if a company has put you in a position, that means that you are the best person for that position. And companies need to deliver results. That's what they are made for. So you are the best person. If you think you have to prove yourself, that means that somehow you are telling the company they were wrong to put you there because you got the wrong person as you have to prove yourself. But despite that, and I say that to women all the time, despite that, call it imposter syndrome, call it whatever, women particularly quite often think, oh, people will not judge me the right way. People will think I was put there because of a woman, because of this, because of that, not because of my competency. But it's self-inducted. I mean, it's us thinking that way. If the others think that way, we shouldn't care. We should just let them. You don't have to prove anything to anyone because the fact you had the job was the proof that you could do it. That's it. End of the story. After that, the way you would normally do it, try to do the best at it and whatever. But when you are trying to always prove something, not only you can push yourself, you can get to burnout to start with, but also you end up with a weird relationship with other people. Because every time, instead of creating a collaborative work environment, you are creating a competitive work environment where everyone is trying to prove he's the best. It's not good for a team. You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Flipping the Barrel, a podcast where we interview leaders in the energy space to uncover and find out more about their careers and life journeys. Today, we have the pleasure to interview Magali Anderson, who is a female pioneer in the oil and gas industry. She has progressed upward through managerial and executive positions in male-dominated industries in diverse international locations, such as Angola, Indonesia, Romania, and China. Simultaneously, she had two wonderful daughters who have now graduated from top universities. She's made it to where she is today by taking it one step at a time. Along the way, she's challenged sexism and common misconceptions of female in the workplace while working on her own lack of confidence. Magali is currently the Chief Sustainability and Innovation Officer at Wholesome, where she's responsible for putting sustainability at the core of Wholesome's innovation pipeline, but also the company's strategy and decision-making. Magali has over three decades of experience in the energy sector, primarily with Schlumberger. She started her career as a field engineer on an offshore oil rig in Nigeria and worked in four different continents in both operational and functional roles. Magali graduated as a mechanical engineer from INSA in Lyon, France, and she has a really incredible website called La Petroleuse, where it's a blog, and she also wrote a book about her journey as a field engineer and then just her whole transition into a leader. And that's actually where we found her years ago. There's really no one out there that has done what she's done on her website. And so we really encourage you to go take a look at that. And so Magali, thank you so much for being on today. We've been wanting to have you on for the last three years. And so today we're glad that our dream finally came true to have you here. Thank you so much, Basil, for such a nice introduction. I'm very, very happy to be with you today, with you and Jamie. I can see it's going to be a really fun podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Magali, we just cannot wait to get started. And we really want to hear about the very beginning. So can you tell us, you know, you were born and raised in a small town outside of Paris. 
which sounds really incredible just to begin with. The population was 1,500, and the majority of people who grew up there would just get married, have kids, continue their life, and really never leave. However, this was not something you wanted for yourself. You wanted an adventure. You wanted to see the world, and you wanted to be independent. So you never had to depend on a man was kind of one of your main drivers. You had no idea what to study or even what career path one day that you wanted to be on until you met a young girl who was a field engineer in Brazil. You fell in love with the job description and set your mind to doing just that. Tell us a little bit more about how that came about. Yeah, really, when I look back uh, where I come from, you know, my mom was a teacher. My dad was a factory worker. There was absolutely nothing that would have predicted I would ever get out of that village. And frankly, I was quite happy there. But what my mom taught me, I think, was she was a very strong and independent woman. And I think what she taught me was really how to be an independent person and how important study was. So that's how I ended up traveling all the way to Lyon, <laughs> which doesn't sound far, but when you come from a little village, it's a big step to start studying engineering. And you're right, I think my main driver was really two things, being financially independent so I could live my life. And I think the second one was not to have a boss over me dictating what I need to do hour per hour. But I had absolutely no other idea. And this is really how, like you said, I met that wireline field engineer. So it's good to be in a podcast where you can use the word wireline field engineer and people actually understand what it means. And I just thought, this is fantastic. I know it might be hard to vision that, but we're talking a time where internet didn't exist. So it was not that easy to have access to information about career and what's the next step. So I got that and I thought, that's what I'm going to do. And I still remember at the time when the Schlomberger came to the recruiting fair to my university and they just wouldn't want to recruit me because I was a female. So that was really, we're talking those days. We're talking the days where women were just not expected to move. And that was an even bigger driver for me. I was just in that mood that the more you tell me I can't do it, the more I will try to show you I can do it. I love that attitude. We need more women like that. Today's episode is brought to you by Veril Energy Solutions. Did you know that Veril has been around since 1947? They're originally known for their drill bits, but through several acquisitions, investments, and rebranding, they now offer a diversified portfolio in drilling and completions. One of their core competencies is actually global manufacturing of consumable downhole products. They solve the industry supply chain problems. We've chosen to partner with Farrell because they simply get it. They focus on their employees, they're committed to diversity and inclusion, and they know their only true sustainable advantage is their people. To learn more and stay up to date, please go to www.veril.com. Veril Energy Solutions, beyond technology, beyond normal. And so, like you mentioned, you thrive when people tell you, no, you can't do it, especially because you're a woman. And it challenges you that you want to somewhat prove them wrong. And this is exactly what happened when, like you mentioned, the Sommerje recruiter was there at the career fair and you went up to him because you had already met the gentleman who had an engineering field engineer role in Brazil. And he kind of sold you the dream and you knew exactly what you wanted to do. And it was a field engineer. And so when you went to apply, he said, 
we don't take you, we don't take women to come do these roles. We don't think that this is made for this kind of lifestyle is made for you. How did you convince them to hire you? Because you did end up going to become a field engineer after you graduated. Yeah. So he actually never did say, we don't take you because you're a woman. He just say, he just looked at me and say, it's not for you. Even 34 years ago, saying to a woman that she couldn't get a job because she's a woman was not correct. Even then you couldn't say it. So that's why, because he wouldn't tell me, I just placed a stubborn and I stayed there. And I said, until you tell me why, I won't move. And I literally spent two hours there harassing him, asking him, why not me? You don't know me. You haven't seen anything of me. And I had a lot of friends. So people would come to see him, men, and I would tell them, oh, wow, that's great. He talks to you, not to me. So I think at the end, he just gave up. Wow. He thought, okay, that's easier to give her the application form than to suffer that another six hours. I think he realized I was not going to move. But in all fairness, he played the game because he could have easily, again, remember, we would fill up a paper form and give it to him. So it was not like you go on a website. So he could have easily thrown it away and said, okay, enough of that woman. He actually wrote on it very, very motivated. And then I went through the normal recruiting process. But I think it really upset me. I was overly upset about the fact that I had that resistance because I was just not used to resistance. You know, mm-hmm. I had been a spoiled little girl by my parents and I just did not want that resistance that I could not explain, basically. <laughs> well, it's really incredible because you not only stood there and waited and convinced him, but you ended up having a really successful career, which drove you to start a blog right after being a field engineer. This time for you, I mean, you traveled around the world, you were in very, I would say, remote areas, you know, working in the field where there wasn't cell phones or wasn't access. You know, a lot of times you would go to an area, you couldn't Google it to see where you were going to be. You didn't know what you're getting yourself into. And this really created a really incredible blog and storyline that you were able to really share with the world. What inspired you to do this? And, you know, the impact that you've had, not just on women, but also men and everybody to understand, you know, what it really felt like to be in those areas at that time. Can you share with us, you know, the reasons behind starting your blog? Yeah, actually, I started with the book. And it's funny because I ended up marrying another field engineer working from the cement site. <laughs> I was a wildland girl at that time. We were calling that organization Dawel Schlumberger, the old people who would be listening to us. It was quite complex. Schlumberger didn't know what to do with a woman and even less with a couple. So at some stage I had to leave. So there was a moment that lasted about 10 years where we were trying to accommodate both jobs. My husband was still with Lomberger, but I was kind of either following him or he would put himself on rotation. So it was a bit rock and roll. That was the time where we had our two kids. So it was quite complex, that period of time. And the only period of my life I, I ended up with no job. I had three months with no job because of all those things that I was trying to do. I actually thought what we need is a way to put more women in the industry. So I wanted to open a consulting agency of some kind to do that. And I had no clue how to do that. I had absolutely no idea how you open a consulting agency. And sorry to repeat, without internet, you cannot go to a tutor on on YouTube saying how to open a Mm -hmm. (laughs) consulting agency. So I thought I need to work on my pitch. And I realized I actually did not have a pitch. My pitch was, I lived that, I went through that, it was hard, this is what I learned. And that's the lesson I'm taking out of it. So what started by a pitch ended up with a book. 
<laughs> so I'm just telling all my story time what I learned from it. And I kept that book for a while. I ended up not publishing it as published, but putting it on internet. Finally, internet appeared. So, <laughs> and I think at that moment, what I had in mind is I was thinking of all the young girls who were in my situation and thinking, I wish someone had been there when five years, six, whatever, many years ago, it was by the time I, I published the book. I wish someone had been there to answer my questions. And I was trying by the book to answer as many questions as possible. It's only later and I started doing articles, but that's really what it was. If I can make someone's life, particularly ladies, easier by answering questions, but also if she can learn from my mistakes. And I know we never learn from other people's mistakes. We have to redo the same mistakes, but I thought maybe she will a little bit learn from some of the mistakes and, and maybe I will stop her from having some trouble or stop her from leaving the industry. Maybe that's what she will need to stay ideas in my head, but not really very well structured in fairness. <laughs> wow, Magali, you were ahead of your years. I mean, by a lot because you started blogging, you started writing a book about your journey and sharing, which is what everybody does now. Everybody shares all day long what they do, what their life looks like. And you were doing that many, many years ago, like you said, before the internet, before it was accessible. But what you were trying to do was solve a problem that our industry still has today, which is bringing more women into the workforce. But what's nice is that you were trying to be a mentor through this book. And like you said, so that women can relate to it and say, how can Magali help me? Magali's been through this already. And with your blog, it's been really fantastic because I know on your website, you could write you and say, hey, I'm having issues. And you could, you know, respond, which is really, like, I had never seen a leader do that before in this industry that is so personalized and that you can reach out to you. So on another question, it, we were talking about your whole life, you've been a big advocate for gender equality, especially being a woman engineer, you've been fighting this battle all your life. You understand the hurdles that young and not so young ladies must overcome professionally and personally to succeed. And you are passionate about guiding them and striving in all industries. Can you tell us what you found over the last 25 plus years climbing in your own career, what the top hurdles are for women and how to overcome them? So things have changed a bit for sure. I mean, if you look at Schlumberger today, there's definitely way more women, I guess, on field engineers. I don't think it happened very often anymore that you go to a rig and you are by yourself. So things have changed. But what's amazing I find is I talk to a lot of women. For example, I visit a lot of countries now in my current job, and I always try to have a dinner with the 10 most active women, not necessarily the top, but the ones who clearly wants to change things. Mm -hmm. And I'm amazed by the fact that I hear the exact same thing that I've been hearing for 30 years, and no matter which geographies. Of course, I won't hear talk about you know, what's happening, there are horrible things happening in some countries right now against women where women basic rights are not respected. I'm really talking about, I will stay into the sphere of, of the working agenda. And it's quite amazing. And it's all the same. You would think by now it would be finished. I have a child. The society is making me guilty about the fact that I want to go back to work. Nothing wrong with staying at home if you really want to stay at home, but it should be your choice. It should not be society pushing you. Even I have a child, or I don't have a child, but I have to do dual work. I am the one who does the main core. What society is doing to you, the, the, your families, maybe your partner, maybe the family of your partner, <laughs> I mean, all of that. But also within the companies, 
the bias. And the bias, you would think they would have gone by now, but they are still there so much. And in all forms, you have the bias, which are just clearly, we just don't want to see women climbing the ladder, so we will put obstacle to them. But you have some that are way more subtle like that. I think my favorite one is a paternalistic bias, the one where people are actually nicer with women. But by being nicer, they put them in a position of inferiority instead of put them in a mm. position of equality. And I'm actually almost certain it's coming from a good intent, but mm. the result is the same. I find that there's so little progression on all those topics, which is quite disappointing. It's not, it's not stopping me from fighting. But yes, in one hand, number-wise, there is different. Maybe the last one is the change of leadership. We are not seeing the leadership style evolving. We are still into this old model of leadership. You have to be strong. You have to be always right. You have to be this, you be that. I mean, I think society would benefit a lot if we could have different leaderships coming up. <laughs> what I really like is that you just really talked a lot about inclusion, which we as an organization or not just an organization, but as an industry, I mean, do a really great job with quotas. We do a great job getting people in, but do we really make them feel included? For that reason and for what you've just explained, what do you feel about quotas and how can companies adapt? There's always a lot of debates about quota. Quota sometimes makes me think of people who are vegan. It's become a bad word. So you don't say vegan anymore. You say, I have a plant-based diet and it's much better. So we don't say quota anymore. We said diversity linked to objectives. That's a better word. But outside the wording thing, I think quotas are an unnecessary evil. Nobody likes quota. I don't know a single person who likes quota. But when you put quota, things change. I will call Schlumberger when I'm talking about the past and SLB when I'm talking about today. <laughs> when we look at Schlumberger, it's change. I hear people saying all the time, no, but with time, with things will change. No, things are not changing. Like I said, 30 years, things are not changing. Things change when there is a quota. So it was a reason why quota has such a bad reputation, and particularly with women, is I always hear, I don't want to be a quota mm. woman. And I usually answer, this is complete BS. Excuse my French. <laughs> it doesn't exist, quota women. It's something that patriarchal has managed to make you believe. There's no company in the world that would ever promote a woman if she can't do the job. Mm. No one would give a position to a woman because she's a woman if he doesn't think she's the best person to do that job. What quota do or quotas do is it forces people to look at a different talent pool and different style of leadership. So instead of the obvious leader, the one that everyone knows because usually a he talks a lot, makes a lot of noise, I call those ladies the talented silent women. There's many of them that are super talented. They're just not very good at telling themselves. When you do that, when you put a quota, when you tell your recruiting team or your HR team, I will only work on that recruiting process if there is enough women in it. If not, I will block the system. Suddenly, they find a bunch of talents that was never in the first wave. Mm. And those talents are very good. So by the end of the process, when the person is in place, at least either it's a man or a woman, it doesn't really matter that much. At least the woman were in the race. Mm -hmm. And... If at the end she win that race, and she was in the race because of the quota, and if at the end she win that race, she win the race because she was the best, the fastest, not because she was a woman. Mm. And I think we need to stop that thing about quota women does not exist. It's not true. 
And now a little word from our sponsor, Technique FMC. Macy, you know what I appreciate about them as a sponsor is their mission is directed towards a more inclusive and diverse workforce. One of the reasons why we started this podcast was to move the industry forward, and they back that belief. Their focus is creating a culture of inclusion that will attract, develop, and retain a more diverse, talented group and ensure their employees can always bring their authentic selves to work. Beyond the DNI, they're also big into technologies. They believe in change and innovation in everything they do. Their offerings range from individual products and services to fully integrated solutions with a single interface to ensure a seamless execution. Their core focus is on the energy transition, emerging materials, and digital industrialization. To find out more about their most popular technologies like iProduction, iComplete, eMission, and iEPCI, go to technipfmc.com. And now, back to the show. Thank you for clarifying that. I really like that because I do hear that a lot. I don't want to be a quota when, like you mentioned, it shouldn't even be that. You got the job because you were the best person for the job, regardless. And so on another topic on women, and we like to ask this to a lot of the guests that we've had on, is controlling our emotions at work. And we're always told that women are more emotional. Women, we wear our emotions on our sleeves and we have a harder time to control how we feel because we're more passionate. But emotion can sometimes be detrimental to our own careers because we react a certain way and they don't necessarily want to see that in, in a leadership position. You wrote on your blog in La Petroleuse, advice to my daughter, how to manage emotions at work. Can you tell us a little bit about why you wrote that blog and also maybe how you've used it in your own career? Was there ever a moment that you can remember where you did lose control of your emotions at work and looking back, how did you overcome that? I think I wrote that article for the exact reason that you just said, which is, it is a topic. It is a real topic because most women are more emotional than most men. Not all men, not all women, but most of us. And I'm emotional. I'm a crier. I cry in front of any movie that you put. <laughs> and I have cried in front of my boss a few times. And I still remember one opportunity where I was crying because I was absolutely exhausted and I was upset and tired and because I'd been working nonstop. And I'm a hard worker. So for me to be upset and tired, I really, really had overdone it. And I remember being in my boss office and crying and telling him, don't look at my tears. Concentrate on what I say. Concentrate on what comes out of the mouth, not what comes out of the eyes. Because I am very clear on what I want to say. I'm just not controlling that, but I'm controlling that. Look at that only. And I think we need to learn to accept it because, in fact, there's nothing we can do about it. The worst thing is to be ashamed. When you are ashamed, and that goes with the change of leadership I was talking about. You know, I talked to the climate space as now I'm working for sustainability on the sustainability topic. And when you ask people what they want to see in companies, young people, young activists, etc., what they tell you is, we would like to see more vulnerability. So we want to see more managers who are not always right, who admit they can be wrong, who can show emotion. I also manage HSC. I was with the health, safety, and environmental team yesterday, and we were talking about a tragic accident, and they were saying, oh, the moral was low. And I said, it should be low. It's not when there is a horrible accident and you're an HSC person. The day you don't feel that way anymore, either you're not a human being anymore or you shouldn't be in that job anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think we need to embrace those emotions and accept them. And we need to, if enough of us do it, 
instead of hiding in a little corner to hide it is. And I've done that as well, by the way. If enough of us do it, it will become normal and it should be normal. It would add humanity to the office space. I'm just so glad you shared that because there's so many times where like exactly what you said, you have no idea why you're crying, but you're still trying to say something. And it's like, yes, to the point that you said, like, look at what's coming out of my mouth. Do not look at my tears. Cause like, no matter what I do, it's like not controllable. I'm really glad that you shared that. And I think it's so true. And we have heard it time and time again, authenticity is what people want to see. And with that comes emotion. So thank you for sharing that. Which brings us into another point that is, I think, really pivotal and what a lot of people struggle with, especially with their career and advancement. And there was a time in your career when you were working for SLB that you decided to take a step back in your corporate climb with less money, lower status, less responsibility. And it's really hard for people to make these kind of decisions. You did this because you were becoming bored of your corporate strategy job and Spending your time creating PowerPoint slides was not really what you intended to be doing for such a top level role that you were in. So, you know, you decided to take this step backwards. You had reached a stage where you needed action and you wanted the reward of working with teams and seeing the immediate result of your action. How difficult was it for you to do this? Did ego come in the way? How did you step over that ego? Because no matter who we are, we still have that sense of, I don't need to take a step back. I deserve the role that I'm in today and that should be good enough. I don't think I have too much of an ego to start with, (laughs) at least not big enough to interfere in my thinking process. And I think I wrote a book about stopping the train. Life is a train. You're in that train and you always go faster, faster, faster. And you are so busy going faster that sometimes you need to stop the train, step out and think and reflect. Am I who I want to be? What's my priorities in life? I know it sounds a little bit philosophical, but I think there would be maybe less burnout if people were doing that a bit more often, you know, where you just stop and think. And I think I wrote in the book somewhere, a degree or position shouldn't become a burden. You shouldn't be doing something because you can. You should do it because you want to do it. So I think society should accept more people who step down or people who do. And the young generation seems to be doing that more, that turning their back to, this was just a not, I mean, I was still in a very good job and everything. So it was not really a huge drastic change, Mm -hmm. but it was more a decision that I accepted the fact that I was not going to go much further. And I did not want to go much further. I just did not like it. I much preferred the other life. It didn't seem such a difficult decision at the time, but I think it's something that certainly was a huge factor of my well-being mm-hmm. and certainly saved my mental health. I think we should make that decision. What is your mental health worth versus a position, a job, and a salary? Mm-hmm. Maybe if we could question that a bit more often, we would be in better shape. I really like that. I think not enough of us do that because we feel this external pressure of needing to perform and climb up and you only see the climb upwards. And then the second that we talk about taking a step back, it's like taboo. It's like, no, no, what is everybody going to think? What's everyone going to see when they don't see that my title gets bigger, right? But at the end of the day, to your point, it's all about mental health. And is this truly your calling? Is this truly what you want to do? And so thank you for sharing that. On that same topic on mental health, 
you said it's okay to not be okay and to not underestimate how long it will take you to move on. You know, depression affects many people and it doesn't matter how strong, confident or successful someone has been. No one is immune to that feeling of feeling depressed at some point. We're headed to an uncertain place. You were sleeping more. You know, maybe your husband was saying like, hey, like what's going on? You're changing a little bit. You're sleeping more often than you weren't and you didn't feel like yourself. How did you overcome these feelings and what advice do you give to those who may be feeling like they're going through a burnout and how do you get out of that? And then once you get out of that, that it's okay that you're not just going to get back up in one week's worth and you're going to be okay. It's a transition and it could take time. Yeah. So it was a pretty, very, very hard time. And I think what make it worse is because I'm so strong. And I think, you know, you've described a bit my career. So I'm considered as a very strong woman and I consider myself as a very strong woman that I could not admit that as a strong person, I could be subject to depression. It was just not possible, not to me. So it delayed enormously the time for me to accept it and react. And I think it's a huge mistake. I could have certainly, if I had handled it earlier, I would have certainly been much more, I would have reacted much quicker before going much less far. I don't know if you say that in English. So really listening to oneself is so important and not thinking that because you are a strong, accomplished professional with a big job, you can't be exposed to burnout, depression. So it went quite far, never to the point where I had to stop work, but to the point where I was in tears in the HR telling her, get me out of here or else. That was so pretty far. And then when I got out of that situation where, because the symptoms have been taken off you or all the bad things that happened to you, people expect, so people knew I was going badly. It was pretty obvious. (laughs) People expect that you are straight away going to improve. And you don't. I mean, mental illness takes forever to heal. Takes years, minimum a lot of months, but definitely not weeks. And it's actually a tough period because it's a period where people don't understand why you are still going bad when everything around you should make you go well. So I had a big support from my family, from my kids, from my husband, and that helped going through. But I think you come out of it, first of all, being way more understanding of your own limits, and that's important. And it's a bit back to the discussion we had two seconds before about taking care of your own well-being. I am more important than my job. I, as a person, is more important than my job. And you have to realize that. And and it makes you grow as a person to go through an epidemic. I don't wish anyone to go through that because it's really not pleasant. But I think it makes you grow as a better person after that. Thank you for sharing because there's a lot of people who are not just listening, but just in the world today. We see this a lot and we see people going through this you know, especially with social media and everything that we have going on in our lives, you know, even at times, it's not just take a break from work, it might be take a break from Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, social media, like get off of it for a second, listen to positivity, you know, change your mindset, and it takes time. And it means a lot for somebody so strong as you to share that you went through that as well. So thank you for being so honest and authentic on the podcast to share your feelings and what happened. You know, this kind of brings us to, you know, in your upcoming book, you mentioned, I tried to explain how an angry young lady who wanted to prove to the world that women can do it, learned the hard way that there was another way. Let's unpack what you meant. This was a quote from your book that's going to be coming out soon. And is it true that at times your need to prove as a woman you could do it held you back in some ways? Yeah, I think it certainly is the biggest lies that exist. 
It's, a, it's a like the quota story, the same thing. If a company has put you in a position, that means that you are the best person for that position. And companies need to deliver results. That's what they are made for. So you are the best person. If you think you have to prove yourself, that means that somehow you are telling the company they were wrong to put you there because you they got the wrong person as you have to prove yourself. But despite that, and I say that to women all the time, despite that, call it imposter syndrome, call it whatever, women particularly quite often think, oh, people will not judge me the right way. People will think I was put there because of a woman, because of this, because of that, not because of my competency. But it's self-inducted. I mean, it's us thinking that way. If the others think that way, we shouldn't care. We should just let them. You don't have to prove anything to anyone because the fact you had the job was the proof that you could do it. That's it. End of the story. After that, the way you would normally do it, try to do the best at it and whatever. But when you are trying to always prove something, not only you can push yourself, you can get to burnout to start with, but also you end up with a weird relationship with other people. Because every time, instead of creating a collaborative work environment, you are creating a competitive work environment where everyone is trying to prove he's the best. It's not good for a team. I fully agree that it helps people. And I was with, like you said, the hard way because I was in Nigeria at this young field engineer, not only cut off from my family in an environment which was pretty challenging, but I basically had no friends for a period of time because I was horrible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was just, well, look at me, how strong I am. Look at, I was just horrible. I don't think I would have been a friend of me at that time. (laughs) (laughs) So just don't do it. Just do your job and have your own self-confidence that you are there because you have the talent and the skills it takes to do that job. One word about imposter syndrome. I've had the imposter syndrome all my life and it's not a bad thing. It's actually not a bad thing to reach a job and thinking, wow, going to be tough. Because that means that you are going to take it very seriously and work hard and be good. Instead of being overconfident that you are, yeah, we're going to be a walk in the park. And I remember talking to the previous CEO of SLB, a guy called Andrew Gould, about the fact that he had put me, I knew it was him who had recommended me to go in a position which I thought was really, really hard. But in addition to that, I just didn't have the profile for that job. And I couldn't understand why he put me there. So double imposter syndrome. And his answer was, that's exactly because I want you to change things that I took someone who had a different profile. So don't try to look like the others. With your profile, with your energy, because that's what I want you to do. That's why I put you there. And that was a huge eye-opener. So I continue to have imposter syndrome when I go into the job, but I live with it. I take it as a strength instead of a weakness. Wow. Thank you for sharing. And it's great to have those kind of leaders in place because men are in positions to affect change and to put females in positions like yourself, and then you can do the same. And so it's really important to have men be part of the picture and be part of the evolution of bringing more women to the workplace. So that's really nice to hear that happen for you. And for the last question, your role now, Chief Sustainability and Innovation Officer at Wholesome, which is fabulous. Congratulations. It's really nice to see one more female at that C level. You know, you're increasing the percentage. So that's amazing. And tell us a little bit about this role and being in sustainability after leaving the oil field and kind of shedding that background. And then now you're on pursuit to making a better planet and taking care of the world. And tell us a little bit what inspires you to create a cleaner world. And the whole point of, you know, cement being a huge 
part into the CO2 emissions into the world. And tell us a little bit about that balance and maybe the feedback that you've gotten when it comes to cement and, oh, sustainability. So, yeah, I got the 50 wake up call thing. Some people buy a sport car. In my case, I decided that I wanted to give more purpose to my life. And more purpose was to move to HSC, move to sustainability and trying to see how I could have an impact. And I actually think the work I'm doing will have an impact because I am changing an industry from the inside. And that's how I look at it. The world needs cement, the world needs oil and gas. We know that. We need to trust it. We know that as well. But from the inside, what you can do, because those industries are needed, instead of going against them, work with them to make them improve from the inside. And the impact you can have will be just incredible. We were the first company to do the net zero pledge, and now all of our competitors have done it. The full industry have moved to a net zero pledge with uh, via our association. It, we were the first to have service-based target initiative, et cetera, et cetera. So we have really opened the track, which people are following. And if you think about it, Holcim emits, let's make it simple, roughly 100 million tons of CO2 per, per year. Last year, we reduced 2%. It doesn't sound maybe much, but it's 2 million tons. It's huge. It's enormous. So I think that's really how I looked at it, is that I could use all the skills I've acquired during my 30 years career in the oil and gas industry, which, you know, is super challenging, very scientific, many science people. And I'm an engineer and I always wanted science in my life and using all of that to help transitioning quicker. That's how I ended up doing that. Yeah. I love that you added in there, you know, it's not going to go away. We need oil and gas. Of course, we need cement. We need what we're doing today. And we just need to do it just a little bit better. And I couldn't think of anybody more suited for this role besides you. And I'm just so excited to just learn more as you progress and to see more and also hear you talk. I know you do a lot of different talks, just not locally, but also I believe there's one that you did a TED Talk. And so there's just all different places people can find you and all the stuff that you have been doing and are doing. And we just thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sharing your story, but also sharing your story to the world when nobody else was years ago. And we owe so much to you and to the women that pioneered for all of us today. And so just thank you so much, Magalie, for coming on and sharing all this great advice with us. No, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to exchange. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And if you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, leave us a comment, add a review. Uh, You can find us on flippingthebarrel.com and we will add in the notes where you can find Magalie and all of her amazing work that she's been doing. So thank you so much for coming back on. 